Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk. Producer Stephen here to introduce today's conversation that Danny has with Project Heal co-founder and CEO, Christina Safran. She talks about the key to fostering better relationships with food through closer relationships with peers. It's a great conversation. Please enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk. Today, I get to chat with Christina Safran the co-founder and CEO of Project Heal. Uh, Project Heal is the largest grassroots eating disorder nonprofit in the United States, and it focuses on providing access to healing uh, via a treatment access program. And Christina will talk a lot about it in a minute. Christina, I- I'm really excited to, to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Of course, excited to be here. Um, so the first question I ask everyone on this show is, uh, what is your favorite food memory? Ooh, that is a good question. <laughs> um, well, I'm a big ice cream person, so I don't know that I have one particular memory, <laughs> but I have lots of memories. 32 of flavors? <laughs> <laughs> lots of memories of being a kid and, you know, my mom and dad taking me out to ice cream parlors or yogurt shops or whatnot, um, you know, after dinner as a treat and having that be one delicious and two good, like special family time together. That's nice. That's awesome. Um, and and I, I love people share such different memories. You know, often people are like, I cooked this weird thing with my grandpa or whatever. And it's nice to hear sort of like a joyous story about food, because um, I mm-hmm. think we forget that food is meant to be joyful. Um And, you know, I think that's part of why I'm so excited to talk to you today because, you know, Food Tank uh, doesn't cover this issue. We've never covered uh, eating disorders. We talk about global hunger. We talk about obesity. We talk about, you know, conflict and climate change. And, and, you know, this is um, a topic that's, you know, so important um, for young people, uh, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And I think it's something that so many people struggle with and they don't talk about. And, you know, uh, it's something I've struggled with uh, in the past. And I think, you know, disordered eating in a lot of ways um, made my obsession about food into food tank eventually. So uh, I I think, you know, being able to to turn something that's negative and very harmful into something positive is, is what you and your co-founder have done. And I'm hoping you can just tell um, our listeners a little bit about what Project Heal does. Absolutely. So Project Heal is the largest grassroots eating disorder nonprofit in the country. And our mission is to provide access to healing for all people with eating disorders. And so we have two core programs that we run through our 40 chapters. Um, the first is our treatment access program. Uh, so 30 million Americans are estimated to suffer with eating disorders and 70% oh. of them don't have access to treatment. Uh, so I actually started the organization when I was 15 in my own recovery just to raise money for people who couldn't afford treatment. Right. Um, and we've been funding treatment grants to individuals for the past 10 years. I would say over the past three years, we've, we've gotten a little bit more sophisticated in our approach and recognize that, you know, treatment access is still a huge need, but funding individuals piecemeal is not the most scalable solution. And so we've recently partnered with the Kennedy Forum. Uh, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy has really been the leading 
politician uh, in, involved in mm. mental health treatment mm-hmm. access and partnered with them to create what we're hoping will be a model uh, mental health treatment access program that can be scaled out to other grassroots organizations. That's so exciting. Can you talk about why people don't have access? Is it because their insurance won't pay for it or there's it's not available in their area? Can you explain why it's access part of this is so important? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a tricky issue. You know, I, I thought when I started this at first, um, I thought it was just insurance not covering it. And insurance coverage is fairly poor for <laughs> eating disorders yeah. and mental health disorders in general. Um, you know, increasingly, we have seen, so uh, the Mental Health Parity and Addictions Equity Act was passed. Uh, in 2008, and that basically said mental health disorders need to be treated at the same rate as physical health disorders by insurance companies. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a tricky thing to enforce because you go into the hospital for a broken leg and it's much more clear how much time you need as opposed to an eating disorder or depression or whatnot. Um, So we've seen some good gains from that law, and actually more and more we see folks having access to, at least if they have commercial insurance, having access to higher levels of care. Um, but then one of the big problems that we're seeing increasingly is that folks may have access to, you know, a long-term residential facility, but there's very little outpatient treatment mm-hmm. um, right now. So you may have, let's say you have Anthem insurance and you have, you know, access to therapy, but if nobody within your network is an eating disorder specialist, which we see is really often the case, yeah. um, you essentially don't. So that's one of the bigger issues that I've been seeing is access to, you know, outpatient treatment, longer term community care, because it's almost as we say full recovery is possible, but it often takes years and you need, you know, good quality specialized outpatient treatment. Um, Medicare, Medicaid, really the, the coverage for treatment is it's much poorer than commercial insurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then besides the insurance issues, you know, there are a lot of questions or there are a lot of challenges with stigma of this disorder, sure. particularly there's a strong and unfortunate stigma that this is sort of a white rich girl vanity Uh issue and a choice and not a real mental illness when in fact we know that folks struggle pretty equally across race, class, ethnicity, um, body shape and size, actually a third of sufferers are men. But we still have this problem where if you are not young, white, thin, female, upper middle class, um, many people really feel like they don't, they couldn't possibly suffer with an eating disorder. And so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of kind of self stigma in there as well. And I mean, I I think also people don't realize how deadly eating disorders are. Can you talk about that? And, you know, that really um, enforces this idea that it's important to get treatment and very early. Absolutely. Absolutely. So next to opioids, eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses, which is largely driven by the high suicide rate in the population. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So these are very deadly illnesses. And you're absolutely right. Early intervention is the most important thing. And unfortunately, again, I think going back to the stigma, most people suffer for at least a couple of years before they're getting treatment. Um, I would actually say one of the biggest kind of misconceptions and reason that, reasons that folks don't get treatment is uh, the stigma that eating disorders only affect uh, people who are emaciated, which is not at all the case. That is the stereotypical mm-hmm. image of somebody with an eating disorder, but in fact, 
the large majority of people with eating disorders are not are not underweight. And and people kind of hide in plain sight with like so many other mental illnesses. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you talk about this idea of healing, which, you know, is a word I, I appreciate. And uh, can you talk about what that means in, in terms of treatment? It's not just about getting treated and getting out of uh, a facility. It's actually healing yourself from the, the eating disorder. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks for following up on that. So I mentioned, you know, access to healing, we do treatment access, but we also really realize that Full recovery requires more than just clinical treatment. Um, and we, you know, knew this. We have about nine full-time staff members, and the majority of us have our own uh, personal recovery stories. But we also have this amazing community of patients and families all over the country. We have 40 chapters of following on social media, about 100,000 patients and families. Wow. And we really asked them. We spent four months doing interviews with them to say, what was the most important thing in your recovery? And the biggest theme was other people who've been there, other people who understand my brain and can really show that full recovery is not only possible, but really, really worth fighting for. And we kind of said, duh, uh, why, why has this not really been done? You know, peer support is this strong, uh, has strong evidence based in a number of other mental illnesses and had never really been utilized for people with eating disorders. And so we decided to build the first comprehensive peer support and mentorship program for folks with eating disorders called Communities of Healing. Um, we have two components of the program right now. We have weekly in-person community support groups that are now running in six cities across the U.S. So we have them in New York, Boston, Philly, Pittsburgh, wow. LA, and San Francisco. And then we also have a one-to-one mentorship program that is delivered both in person and actually mostly online via video conferencing. That's so cool. I mean, I think, you know, when I was, you know, young and in the, the throes of my eating disorder, having someone to talk to you would have been super key because I, I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone. And then having sort of a mentor you know, the, through your mentorship program, having somebody to sort of look to as an example, I think that's like so crucial that I, if I'd had that, I think I would have probably, you know, uh, recovered much earlier from, from that kind of, you know, uh, experience. So I, 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 you know, I, something I really appreciate about your organization, being able to show people examples of, of what recovery looks like. Oh, it's been, it's been so amazing to see. I mean, absolutely, right? Eating disorders are so hard to treat because, I mean, for many reasons, but one of the biggest ones is that recovery is sort of ambivalent at best, right? You have depression, you have anxiety, you want them gone. Eating disorders, it, it really becomes kind of part of your identity mm -hmm. and there's a kind of desire to hold on to it. And so, you know, just having someone who really shows that, you know, this, it's, it's hard. I get it. This will be the hardest thing you ever do. And it's possible and it's worth it and keep fighting. It's the simplest thing, but it really truly makes, you know, all the difference, especially given that, you know, and you know this very well, but when you have an eating disorder, you have to, you know, I always describe my recovery as essentially hating myself for an entire year and mm. having to do the very thing that I fear most every day, multiple mm -hmm. times a day, right? So you just really need that critical source of like, it's possible. And it's cool because we've had 
so many people go through our program about 350 to date. And, you know, one of our current mentees, she's been in and out of treatment 20 times. Um, And she said, this is the first time that I've truly felt that full recovery was really possible. Um, And then on the other hand, we have a lot of folks from, you know, more underserved communities who don't see themselves represented and they come to our support group sort of dipping their toes in the water, Uh, you know, like, I don't know if I have this, let me just try it out. And through being in group and being in community with other people who share experiences, they've really realized, you know what, I think I have an eating disorder and and I think I want to get help. That's so great. And I mean, you know, getting back to that stigma issue, it's not just white people who are wealthy, it's people of all of all um, genders and income, uh, strat, uh, you, you know, it, it just really goes across the whole board. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this isn't just a young people's disease as well. I think we often think of it as a young woman's disease. Um, it, it affects everyone of all ages, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, I should, I should unfortunately say her epidemiological data is really pretty poor. So eating disorders, despite being something that affects, you know, 10% of the population, are one of the lowest funded um, disorders. Uh, it's about 73 cents per affected individual for research funding, as opposed to $89 for schizophrenia, which wow. has a similar prevalence. So all of that is to say, we don't know a lot. Um, however, we do know increasingly that, yeah, I mean, these disorders affect people pretty equally from our understanding among, amongst, you know, race, class, ethnicity. Um, like I said, the majority of people with eating disorders are not at all underweight. A third of folks with eating disorders are men. Um, and then, um, actually there's, there's new and increasing research that Olenia and binge eating disorder are actually more common in black and Hispanic communities. Um, on a recent study that showed that actually as the level of food insecurity rises in a community, the levels of eating disorders directly rise and wow. not just sort of binging and restricting, but also purging behaviors. Wow. So, so interesting. And, and, you know, I, it's so sad too, that it, you know, it's something that doesn't get the the funding and research support that it needs. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> Go ahead. It's, it's, we have an uphill battle to fight. Although, you know, I, I do feel confident in, in the last several years, you know, we have seen an increase in the research. We um, we do sort of know much better. We can point to epidemiological data like this. And we actually have treatments that, you know, work and are effective. Mm-hmm. And so I... I think we're gonna see uh, we're gonna see a lot more information and understanding in the next couple of years. And you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I think that these disorders and their treatments look fairly similar to substance abuse. And you know, mm. there's a obviously a lot of national conversation going on now about that. And that's a similar disorder where you know there was a lot of stigma around this is a choice people need to want to get better and, and now people are really understanding no that's not at all the case um this is really a, a serious mental illness with neurobiological underpinnings so hopefully we can sort of pay close attention to what's happening in that space and, and sort of ride ride that wave for sure 
For sure. And I mean, since I was young, seeing the stigma around this, you know, get less and less and, be, you know, being able to talk about it like I am now or, you know, talking to to friends about it, it it's it's a huge change from when I was in my teens, early 20s. So I, I think we have oh, made progress. Um, I, you know, you've talked about all these changes that I think, uh, you know, are needed in the healthcare system to, to help people who have eating disorders. Is there any change that you can pinpoint to in, in the food system that would help, uh, people who are struggling with these issues? Hmm. Well, I think the, uh, what I just brought up around food insecurity is really interesting and it makes a lot of sense because we know that you know, in terms of binging and restricting, you know, there is a cycle. Binging almost always is tied to restriction. Um, that is what, you know, causes people to binge. And so you can, you can really understand a situation in which from an early age, you, you know, you're in an environment where you right. really don't know where your next meal is coming from. That's necessarily going to put you on a path of, restricting and binging. It's, it's a pure survival thing, right? And so now we just have much more understanding to say, well, when that happens, when that's sort of what happens from an early age, it's going to set you up for that sort of relationship with food going forward. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, you're just creating the disorder by by being, you know, having that situation where people don't have access or can't afford food because they... they oh, Absolutely. You know, um, Absolutely. And I think additionally, you know, I love how you started this podcast about, you know, food being joyful as well. I think in this country, we have such a weird and messed up relationship with food where it's kind of, you know, clean eating and paleo and keto and you have to be absolutely perfect. And then you, you have your cheat days, right? And these like crazy supersized portions and you're going to go all in. And it's like, that is, you know, absolutely the wrong way to eat. We should be thinking about food, you know, everything in moderation, pleasures in moderation, um, and really, you know, loving and enjoying our relationship with food. You know, thankfully, I'm at a point where now in my recovery, I I love food. I, right. love, I look forward to my, my meals and going out to dinner with friends and you know, savoring a, a glass of wine and, you know, a, a thing of pasta. That's not, that's not a cheat day. That's not going to make me feel guilty. That's, you know, having a joyful, delicious experience with, with friends and family. And I think if we can cultivate more of that relationship Absolutely. with food, you know, we'd, we'd definitely better. I'm a big fan of the intuitive eating philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and really try to follow that myself. And I think that's been a philosophy that's that's really helpful for a number of folks in eating disorder recovery. Um, but frankly, it's, it's a helpful philosophy for sort of anyone to follow. Right. It's sort of trusting your body again and trusting, you know, your own mind. I think that, the, the, you know, people with eating disorders don't trust themselves. So I, being exactly. able to get back to that is something uh, really important. You know, you talked about the weird relationships, especially that Americans have with food. They're good and they're bad foods. And what I liked is you, you talked about sort of the, the sharing and convivi- conviviality aspect of it. And that's, you know, we talked about joy before. It's something that's so lost. You know, we eat in our mm-hmm. cars. We, you know, eat on the run. I eat over my laptop, you know. So how can mm-hmm. we integrate that back into to our lives so that we don't create, you know, the the sort of 
loneliness that, you know, helps helps perpetuate eating disorders, I think, a lot. Because, you know, if, if people aren't seeing you eating on a regular basis, it's, it's sort of easier to hide. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's crucially important. And it's funny because I, I talk about this a lot that I think uh, the health conversation oftentimes is so narrow. And I often make the example of like, you know, health experts might say it is best to, you know, get off of work and go to the gym and then, you know, get a small salad with chicken and eat it at home. Whereas, you know, oftentimes maybe I'll have a plan to go to the gym after work and a friend calls and says, hey, do you want to get, you know, drinks and dinner? And it's like, yes, absolutely. That's the healthy thing for me. Especially, you know, to, to go a little bit further, we have all this increasing knowledge about uh, the health harms of social isolation and loneliness, mm-hmm. right? So I think as much as you can be with people, I mean, that's the true driver of happiness and sharing that food and that experience. Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with this research, but I, I think there is some good emerging research too about, you know, sort of the, the state you're in and how you're feeling and how your body actually is processing food right. as well. Um, and I can't help but think that if you're having, you know, an enjoyable uh, meal with loved ones, that's going to only be a benefit as well. So, you know, I, I think <laughs> the only advice I would say is, is is try it more. Let yourself, you know, have those experiences and plan around, you know, meals with people and, um, you know, see how it see how it feels for you. I think that's something that having my eating disorder so young, I got really lucky because, you know, we know that um, – one of the healthiest things for families that shows in research is to have family meals. It's both a, a great pre- prevention mechanism for both eating disorders and for obesity. And so when, since I was diagnosed so young, my parents really implemented the family meal as we had family dinner together every night. And that's something that I really try to carry on in my own life. Um, you know, sometimes the I would love to have three meals a day with people I do on vacation, but obviously in the <laughs> hustle and bustle of, sure. of real life, breakfast and lunch are usually individual, but I really do make a point to have, you know, a sit down meal um, every night. It, it drives my husband a little crazy, but uh-huh. I think he's gotten used to it. I think he's like, this is a, this is a good thing. And, and he actually has come to, to really enjoy that time and cherish that time as well. That's awesome. That's really sweet. And I'm glad you mentioned families. And I just sort of want to go back to this healing aspect of, of the work that you do. I think that that families of people with eating disorders are often blamed, maybe especially mothers, sometimes fathers. Can you talk about why it's important not to blame any, you know, my mom will be listening to this, right? And, you know, she had to watch me go through some hard times. And I, I think, you know, she felt responsible. But this is, this is like other, you know, mental illnesses. This is something that that's no one's fault. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, no, this is, I mean, first of all, eating disorders are so highly, you know, genetic and neurobiological are the causes. And, you know, one of the unfortunate sort of remnants of the history of psychiatry was that we did have this big sort of 
parent blaming movement mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of our history. And we know that that is absolutely not true. Families absolutely do not cause eating disorders. And, you know, I, my parents were, were absolutely wonderful. They did nothing wrong. And I was just someone who was really right. genetically predisposed to this. And, you know, my trigger was something as simple as a babysitter dieting. And, you know, unfortunately, we live in this very messed up world with food and body where, you know, if you have a genetic predisposition, even if your parents are absolutely wonderful, um, <laughs> you know, the world, the world can present some, some pretty hard triggers. Absolutely. Um, what I will say is that parents, we, we now know that parents and families are the best allies in their loved one's recovery and that really having them involved is the best treatment mechanism and treatment modality. Um, and you know, the only thing that I would say, and this is not at all blaming, but, a lot of people in our society, I would venture to say the majority of people in our society have weird relationships with food mm-hmm. and body. And so that's the only thing for families and friends of, of people going through an eating disorder. I would say, you know, look at, look at your own, really truly examine your own relationship with, with food and body and sort of, uh, you know, any sort of, negative beliefs sure. that you hold towards, towards, you know, bad foods or people in larger bodies or any of that, which are, which are definitely not going to be helpful beliefs to hold as you're supporting a loved one. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've let my mom off the hook. It, it's not her fault. <laughs> um, thank you. She'll be pleased. Um, you know, I, I think because your, your, your organization is growing and, and because of how uh, our co-founder Bernie Pollock met you, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit and you alluded to it before about the social media aspect of the work that you do and why that's important for helping people, um, you know, who are who are struggling with these things. Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, social media in some ways I think is responsible for the real growth of Project Heal. When we found it, it was in 2008 with the rise of of Facebook. And um, I think it's not to say that my co-founder Leanna and I were the first to say that full recovery is possible. I think we were just able to really utilize that platform and, and get our stories out as people in recovery. And we found really quickly that that resonated with a lot of people, right? To have a voice saying, this is this is really possible. Um, and it really was inspiring to people. I think prior to that, there had unfortunately just been kind of pro-anorexia, pro-bulimia, and sort of harmful content on the web. And this really gave people a place where recovery was desirable Mm -hmm. and cool, right? (laughs) Um, And inspiring. And so our growth on social media has been pretty organic. And it's it's a pretty amazing place. I mean, we still get notes every day from people who are like, thank God I found you. This has been the most helpful thing in my recovery. And sometimes it really is just hearing from people who've been there, hearing aspirational quotes, having sort of a counterbalance to the crazy culture of the world we live in, um, I think is, I think it's really, really beneficial for folks. That's really, that's so encouraging to hear. And again, if I'd had that sort of community of people, you know, to find, I think it would have been really helpful and inspiring and and help you know again help me get through those those really difficult times. Um, you you yeah. mentioned uh, the the Kennedy Forum before and the work that you're doing with them. And I want to give you a chance to talk about ED Equity. Is is that what it's called? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Go and it, it, you you launched that earlier this year, right? 
we launched it earlier this year. And so, yeah, basically, Patrick Kennedy was the leading political advocate for mental health parity. Um, so we've partnered to build this model treatment access program where really our first step is going in and collect really robust data on where the current treatment gap access issues are occurring. So like which states, which insurance companies, which mm-hmm. levels of care. Um, and based on the data that we see, really putting a, together a plan to say, you know, how do we best help people? Because we know that a lot of people who are applying to us, they just need help navigating their insurance, yeah. right? Insurance is really, really complicated to navigate. Um, and having a trained volunteer who can do that can often go a, a long way. Um, you know, additionally, up, up a level insurance, unfortunately, routinely denies care that folks are entitled to. And most people don't know it's a parity violation. They just say, oh, my insurance oh. didn't cover that. So really, you know, helping folks to navigate that entire process wow. and then, you know, potentially getting up into legislation and litigation. But I think a lot of the areas that we're going to see are actually um, you know, the sort of network adequacy issues and just not having enough people who are specialized in eating disorders right. within the network. So that's not necessarily like legislation or litigation. It's actually working in partnership with insurance companies to say, you know, how can we make sure that you have more adequate, um, adequate lower levels of care? Yeah, and I, I'm interested, you know, you've, you've talked about that there aren't a lot of people who are experts in eating disorder care. Why, why is that? Is this just an area that therapists and doctors don't want to go into and specialize in? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it goes back to sort of the lack of funding and lack of awareness in this. And this, you know, goes right back to even like medical school training, yeah. right? People just don't get training in and eating food or nutrition either. To, you know? Right, right, exactly. And and so they don't know how to identify these things. They don't know how to deal with it. Um, even if they did know how to identify it, they wouldn't have anyone to refer to. So mm-hmm. it actually starts way earlier in terms of, you know, primary prevention, early intervention really trying to incorporate this and, and get information to not only medical doctors, primary care physicians, but also like teachers and school nurses and sort of frontline health professionals um, who can really identify it much earlier because God, you know, right now most people aren't being identified until a couple of years into their illness. If they were identified six months into their illness, their trajectory would be much, much stronger. Wow. Yeah. Really important. Like any any disease or illness, you know, detecting it early is is really important. Yep. Yep. Uh, before I ask the, the final question, um, where can people find more information about Project Heal? Yep, absolutely. It's www.theprojectheal.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Project Heal. And we'll also have the link on our website uh, when we publish the podcast. Okay. Wonderful. (laughs) So the final question is actually three sort of rapid fire. I just want you to say the first thing that comes into your head, okay? Sounds good. (laughs) Okay. Who inspires you the most? Ooh. It's a hard one, I know. It can be it can be more than one. I'll let you off the hook. I'll say my husband. Aw, 
Oh, no one has ever hey. said that on this podcast. That makes me uh, really happy. He's a, he's a fellow fellow entrepreneur, um, and it's, it's cool doing this together. Awesome. Uh, your favorite book? Favorite book? Ooh, there are so many, but I'm actually going to say more relevant to this podcast, um, intuitive eating mm. um, or health at every size. Oh, nice. And yeah, that's Evelyn a great Tripoli book. and Linda Bacon. Awesome. And the final one is, what do you think about when you're not uh, working on Project Heal-related work? <laughs> um, ooh, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, what do I think about? I don't know that I, I try not to think, uh, and I try to, <laughs> I try to get to the beach. I live in San Diego, California, and 10 minutes from Torrey Pines. This is one of the nicest oh uh, beach areas <laughs> in the country. So I try to get there as much as I can. <laughs> oh, no, I'm jealous. Uh, thanks so much. That's awesome. It's been so great uh, talking to you, Christina. Thank you for letting share a little bit about, you know, some of what I went through. I think you're so inspiring. I can't wait to meet you in person. And, and just thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Well, ditto, ditto, ditto. And I do hope to meet you in person soon. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com, email me at danielle at foodtank.com, and follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.